Welcome, this is Michael Volkoff, and this is episode 124 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Our episode today is an interview of Elizabeth Slim, who recently joined the Volkoff Law Group, and she's gonna, she and I are going to discuss uh, AML issues, anti-money laundering, and financial compliance uh, trends. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining me today on Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Before we get started, two points. First, please subscribe to our podcast and give the podcast uh, a five-star rating. Second, today's episode is sponsored by Bureau Van Dyke. Today's podcast episode of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance is sponsored by Bureau Van Dyke, a Moody's analytics company. With information on more than 360 million companies, Bureau Van Dyke is the resource for company data and they make it simple to compare companies internationally. Their flagship product, Orbis, is used to find, analyze, and compare companies worldwide for better decision-making and increase efficiency. Bureau Van Dyke recently announced its new Compliance Catalyst, which is a data-driven decision engine and risk management platform. Powered by Orbis, new Compliance Catalyst is a game-changer because nothing else combines data, technology, and people power into a single platform. Compliance Catalyst can streamline your KYC, AML, and anti-corruption research and make your client onboarding and customer due diligence process more reliable and efficient. Compliance Catalyst offers several unique advantages, including an integrated platform that combines your data, entity data from Bureau Van Dyke, and flexible due diligence screening, automated and enhanced, instant risk preview, and screening against watch lists and adverse media in seconds, customized dashboard, risk profiles and thresholds, screening and monitoring settings. As part of the Compliance Catalyst platform, several effective modules are provided, including AI-powered adverse media searches and reviews, shareholder power analyses, entity verification and resolution, and integrated enhanced due diligence services. If interested in a demo of the new Compliance Catalyst platform, please contact Bureau Van Dyke at americas at vdinfo.com or call 1-212-797-3550. Well, I'm really happy to introduce uh, Liz and uh, I mean, I know you're formal name is Elizabeth, but you go by Liz in the industry, who recently joined our law firm. Uh, Liz is a longtime expert in the banking industry and financial compliance. She's a leader in the anti-money laundering industry, uh, and it's a real pleasure uh, to welcome you here today, Liz, and thanks for taking the time to speak to us about uh, AML and financial compliance. Thank you, Mike. Uh, it's a pleasure for me to um, be interviewed by you, but also because I'm very happy to be proud uh, to join the Volkoff Law Firm and to present, you know, what I have experienced throughout my long career in banking uh, in anti-money laundering. I've been in banking for over 35 years with um, a lot of emphasis on bank operations, compliance, risk management and training. And the last 15 years have been really dedicated to anti-money laundering. And from a personal perspective, I really got involved in it after 9-11 because I had a friend who was in the plane that hit the Pentagon. So because of that, oh yes. And because of that, I made it a personal um, lifelong call to myself to see what I can do to help fight money laundering and terrorist financing. So uh, because of that is how I moved from so bank fraud security into the anti-money laundering world. And I haven't looked back and it's it's been very um, educational and very fulfilling for me to be able to do something to help the country as well. So 15 years of anti-money laundering and I've learned so much and have been very happy to also share what I know with many out there in in, in the industry. Well, that's, uh, I didn't know that uh, sort of story of your motivation and sort of coming into the industry. Um, I would say one other important point about you, Liz, is uh, 
you're not a lawyer and you're a terrific person. So I think that goes hand in hand or maybe not. You know, lawyers can be nice people as well, but I think you're nicer maybe because you're not a lawyer. But, well, forget it. Uh, <laughs> I've met many nice lawyers and very happy to be part of this firm because you're yeah. all wonderful. <laughs> So Liz is uh, also very modest. Uh, she is a certified anti-money laundering specialist, and I, I love all the acronyms in this industry, CAMS. Uh, and uh, she has over 35 years, as she mentioned, in bank operations with compliance, risk management, regulatory training, which I know you were just doing recently, uh, and working at various community to mid-sized uh, financial institutions. Liz and I met I would say at least 10 years ago or so. And uh, I was introduced to her through her work in the uh, Southern California chapter of ACAMS, which I uh, not is the Association of Certified Anti-Money Laundering Specialists. And um, I did notice, Liz, one just quick sort of a side question. The Southern California chapter is a pretty active chapter. Um, uh, you had me at a couple of the meetings and it gets a pretty good turnout of a lot of people in the uh, compliance industry. I was uh, kind of, I noticed that. Has that always kind of been true? Uh, yes. In fact, we just celebrated 10 years of forming as the Southern California chapter where we offer several learning events for um, AML professionals in the Southern California area. Uh, in fact, one of our most popular events now is our uh, full day AML symposium training, which is is always occurring around June of every year, and that draws about 350 people. So we incorporate a lot of the hot topics for AML with uh, with qualified uh, presenters in, in the various uh, topics that we present, like in sanctions, uh, financial crime, uh, cannabis industry, etc. And we always have a full regulatory panel as well that. Uh, kicks off every session. So we have the FDIC, the OCC, FRB, and California Department of Business Oversight represented to also share what they are finding as some of the top issues for money laundering, anti-money laundering programs. So we provide a lot of different topics. We just had our 10-year anniversary uh, gala, which we also paid it forward by holding a nonprofit, by holding, I'm sorry, um, a fundraising event for the Coalition to Abolish Slavery and Trafficking. So we focused on the human trafficking um, it, human trafficking violations that's occurring um, domestically as well as internationally. And we were successful in raising over $27,000 to give to that organization that provides a lot of assistance to the, excuse me, to the victims of human trafficking. Wow, so we're very terrific. diverse. Yeah, yeah, we're very diverse, but our whole purpose is to provide networking, learning events to AML professionals in Southern California. So we like to mentor them and um, provide contacts for everybody. That's terrific. Um, you also uh, just to, uh, you also have helped uh, play a big role in ACAM's national meeting. I know which this year is, I think in October or so is in uh, Las Vegas again. And mm -hmm. I, uh, you were nice enough to get me involved in a panel on sanctions uh, at uh, ACAMS. And I, I actually have to tell you, I mean, I go to various compliance programs, but I, I thought ACAMS program there was really terrific. Um, and uh, uh, there were a lot of good sessions and topics. So. Um, you know, for people who are interested, Liz can also help you with, um, you know, sort of a navigating uh, ACAMS as well, uh, besides all the laws and regulations. But um, I wanted to take a moment just to let's look back on 2019. Um, and uh, I want to take one topic just to make a few comments myself and get your reaction. Uh, I know we've discussed, you have your list of trends, but I, and I'm, Kind of blindsiding you with this, Liz, and I apologize, but I still think um, one of the biggest issues, you know, even though it's the second year, I think, of implementation has been the customer due diligence and beneficial ownership sort of movement uh, globally, and uh, that's a big issue for a lot of our clients in the sense of I tell them we really need to know beneficial owners, but 
the financial institutions are now subject to the new uh, FinCEN regulations, and this was the second year. Um, and I still, uh, what I admire, I guess, about even though they were brought to it, the industry was brought to it sort of dragging their feet, um, is that people are really working on getting it done. Uh, and I think it's a lesson for people who are maybe not in the financial industry, who are not subject to a specific regulation requirement, but that, uh, you know, to get this done, and it's an important issue. And I, I just wonder what your thoughts are on, you know, beneficial ownership in the United States for banks. Well, it, it's something that I think was needed to be implemented and is I'm glad that it is here. We've had a lot of shell companies that have been established by bad actors, so to speak. We don't know if, if the shell company a beneficial owner is, say, for a drug lord or for a dictator in a third world country who's, you know, taking funds, stealing funds from the country or it's illicit funds from the drug trade. But to identify beneficial owners, I think, assists law enforcement and it helps the financial institutions understand who they're dealing with. Uh, we're still far behind, I would say, other countries like the UK, where they have a central registry for beneficial ownership. Here in the United States, it's all based, it's all maybe collected um, on a state level, but we don't have a, a national level where it is consistent. So we right. still have some states like Delaware, um, even Nevada, that really doesn't collect the beneficial owners. So in, technically, you know, we still have that um, gap, I would say, but at least, you know, we are doing the best that we can to try to certify and identify who the beneficial owner is uh, for a legal entity. And when those beneficial ownership rules came into play, it basically also added additional um, know your customer and due diligence rules for every bank right. to right. follow, which I think, you know, is always a best practice, but not every bank was um, on the same level as, you know, the bank next door. So this basically leveled the playing field because it was so common for customers to walk in and say, well, my last bank never asked me those questions. Why are you asking these questions? So it now um, made the playing field level from bank to bank. So if customers, you know, balk at the fact you're asking me 10 questions, you know, aren't you going beyond, you know, what you should be asking and we'll, a lot of times you're like, no, this is the new law now. And if you go to the next bank down the street, they will be asking you basically the same uh, types of questions. So that helped a lot of the financial institutions in, in um, conducting due diligence on customers. Uh, I think right now what the challenge is, is risk rating all new customers. Right, right. In other words, how do you, once you get the information, then how do you rank them versus, um, you know, other customers and making sure you have a good, consistent risk-based system that makes total sense right. to them. Yeah. You know, to have that risk-based system to understand what customers are monitored more than others, you know, right. how did you find that? So, you know, it all starts with a good risk assessment of the bank to understand who, you know, your customers are, who, wh where are your geographic locations for your customers as well as your bank located? Is it domestic? Are they international? All the types of products that are used by the customer. So that all factors into risk rating customers. But what the regulators are looking for too is how do you document all this? How do you, what is, is there a scale that you develop right. to say, you know, is there a customer that falls in the low category or medium category or high risk category? So there's more documentation and more justification for banks to identify how did they get to that? How did they make that determination and that level? And I think that's still a struggle for a lot of the financial institutions out there to properly articulate and justify 
you know, what their scale is for risk rating customers and just risk assessments in general. Some risk assessments are more detailed than others. And I think that's where some of the pain points are for say a community bank as well. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, you know, by analogy, what I look at is, so let's take a global company and we're working with them on anti-corruption compliance. We have to do the same thing with regard to our third parties and you know who represent us or vendors or suppliers who may represent us and um and what i found at least this is by analogy we use the same principles in terms of uh learning the ownership of the third party exactly what they're going to be doing what's their business can they justify it do they have expertise you know in a particular market I always remember we had a client who uh, who wanted to hire a shoe salesman to handle all the oil business interactions in Angola. That obviously is a red flag. He doesn't have any experience in the industry. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, but by analogy to your know your customer type of uh, approaches and risk ranking and then documenting it. It, what I found, at least with DOJ, is that if you have a rational basis for your ranking system, they're never going to question it, you know, as long as it's accurate, as long as it reflects it. And so they want to see some kind of system and that it's consistently applied, you know, that mm -hmm. you don't make exceptions for a big third party who's going to deal with a big customer. You apply the same rules across the board. Uh, and don't make exceptions uh, to your rules in that sense. So there's analogies here. And, you know, there are a lot of people who think, um, you know, taking a step back, that the financial uh, models and industry that you worked in actually had a lot of the principles that you all established in your industry uh, have permeated to non-financial institutions and really mm -hmm. You know, are you, the same principles you talk about apply with equal force towards uh, a, uh, towards anti-corruption, towards sanctions, and knowing who you're dealing with. I mean, that's the thing here is to know who you're dealing with and who they are and what do they do and everything you can learn about them. Oh, so, absolutely. But, uh, I mean, know. earlier this in 2019, the DOJ issued um, guidance on right. Legal entities, yes, right. to, to have a, a very good compliance program. And everything that's outlined in that program that businesses should comply with or, or build their compliance program with, the private industry, banks are already there. So that's why I think banks, you know, already have that mindset and understand the roles that they need to do, which is new to, you know, some of these um, corporations or businesses. Right. Manufacturing companies mm -hmm. are not subject to any reg regulation. And all of a sudden they're saying, OK, we got to build a compliance program and you have to educate them about all those principles. Whereas in the banking industry, look, you're regulated people. You have mm -hmm. you have inspections, audits and whatnot where people come in and say, well, sh you know, what are you doing on this issue? Let me see this. Let me see that. So anyways, well, let's go to some of the uh, some of the. Besides customer due diligence, which I think is just a, a global movement, and we see legislation even in Congress now to require, uh, you know, the creation. I mean, they're even talking about creating a registry here in the United States. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'll, I'll wait for that to happen when, you know, I hit the lottery <laughs> probably. But, um, but one of the... One of the trends that you, you've noted before to me and talked about was... Um, Banks are, I find this a fascinating issue with the uh, cannabis industry and with the legalization of marijuana and obviously the hot topic of cryptocurrency uh, and the de-risking uh, by banks. Now, the real, just on the cannabis issue, going back to my days as a federal prosecutor, I mean, the federal law prohibits um you know, uh, possession and trans and distribution of cannabis still. Uh, and state laws are holding that it's uh, legal, you know, more and more states uh, like California, uh, Colorado, where Jessica Sanderson, our uh, colleague, works uh, out of. So 
when you say uh, when you use the term de-risking by banks in relation to these two industries what are we talking about is the cannabis industry for example just an internal conflict for banks how do they handle that issue banks you know are looking at crypto and cannabis as a an added resource that they cannot manage, which is why they de-risk it. And for one thing, cannabis, as you stated, is an illegal substance on the federal level. It's a, labeled a Schedule One substance, uh, which basically states that even physicians aren't allowed to prescribe anything from a oh, Schedule One right. yeah. from a Schedule One substance. So right. even where medical marijuana may be legal under In the state, state law yeah. or wherever, the federal law prohibits it. So exactly. And but all our I mean, most banks or some banks are federally insured uh, licensed and, and insured. Right. We're uh, federally so have, regulated. And right. and because cannabis industry is a federal illegal, it, it's recognized federally uh, as an illegal substance. That is why a lot of banks stay away from it, because technically, if we allow um, cannabis transactions to flow through a financial institution, the bank is violating a federal law because right. we're accepting funds from um, an illicit activity, which is cannabis on the federal level. Even though the states have legalized it, we do, I do see and recognize that there are financial institutions that are banking the cannabis industry, but I can tell you it takes a lot for them to bank it. They have to have a good understanding of the state laws, and if they are in multiple states, how they have to understand each state's laws. California, right. I think, has a plethora of laws for the cannabis industry. There's regulations on who, how to distribute, on how to grow it, on how to package it. So, you know, as a banker, we would probably have to be very aware of all the different licenses that apply in the cannabis industry and even to cannabis-related companies like, um, you know, hydroponics you know hydroponics right, grower. Right. do are they you know do they prov provide 50 percent of their business is with the cannabis industry or is it 80 percent uh business with the cannabis industry then you know their pro their primary customer is the cannabis industry so we know that their source of funds comes from an illegal activity but so how do so when you say de-risking that means that Banks are making a conscious choice not to take those customers on. Is that what they, you're saying? They are basically they, getting out of the business. That's correct. When they de-risk certain industries, they are stating that they will not do business with them. So they will not do business with the cannabis industry and related industries and probably even cryptocurrency. Um, now, for, why cryptocurrency? That's interesting that you put, because I thought, you know, crypto is the rage. Why are banks, what's the risk to banks of dealing with crypto currency. even with the cryptocurrency especially if the crypto if they're the um if they're remitting funds then right. they have to comply with the bank secrecy act laws they have to have oh, an right. aml program so especially if they're remitting you know they're known as a money they're identified as a money remitter so they would have to register as an MSB with FinCEN and the state because right. they are remitting funds and that also entails creating their own anti-money laundering program. As a bank, then the bank needs to ensure that the cryptocurrency um, industry or, or customer does have a viable AML program that they, you know, comply with all, you know, the five pillars of the program. Right, right. Uh, Etc. That they file SARS or CTRs, um, that they are uh, they have a qualified uh, anti money laundering officer, that they're independently audited. So again, that takes more resources to 
monitor and have that industry as a customer for a bank, which is why some banks and why the board of directors at banks said that we just don't want to apply additional resources for that type of industry. So they just make it um, an overall policy that we will know we will not bank them. So it, that type of industry is. But the, the, the interesting to, thing to me as a business is they're just saying we don't want your money. We don't want your revenue and they'd make more money from these two areas but you're saying the regulatory headaches are such that a bank doesn't want to take that risk on mm -hmm. um, and that's it's interesting to me let me you know on this topic and i hate to date myself uh, but about like 10 years ago i went to a money laundering anti-money laundering conference here in san diego and the hot topic at that point or maybe it was eight years ago or so the hot topic about de-risking at that point was money servicing businesses or MSBs. Mm -hmm. it, it, can you explain to me the sort of, you know, where, because I think that MSBs, uh, there were a lot of problems with the MSB industry and people sort of derided the MSB industry. This was a banking conference and AML. And there were actually some big MSBs at the conference and they tried to defend themselves. But what's the controversy that surrounds historically the MSB issue and where are we now? Are MSBs, are they still de-risked as much or do you see more banks dealing with them? There are more banks dealing with them. However, I also know those banks that are dealing with them are falling into um, criticism by their regulators because they're not applying enough due diligence on the MSB industry. Uh, okay. You have banks that are doing it well, and you have banks that are not doing it well. And it, it, those banks that aren't doing it well have fallen under major criticism um, by their regulators. And then you look at an example like Merchants Bank of California, where right. that bank, their whole clientele, I think, was MSBs. But it was also a conflict of interest because I think the owner of the bank or the chairman of the board actually owned MSBs, which is why he opened that bank so he can bank his MSBs. And then they opened up their clientele to even international MSBs. But um, they were looking at the revenue stream and they also turned a blind eye or they falsified documents and as well as uh, hid information from the regulators uh, regarding the oversight of their MSBs, as well as even telling employees blatantly that they will not file reports on some of their um, MSB clients to avoid bringing um, scrutiny with their clientele. So you have that extreme, but you also have, say, like the community banks, especially um, the ones servicing their clients in their community, um, taking them on. But because of the lack of resources or lack of proper due diligence, um, right. they're getting criticized. Um, but and, isn't and, like, um, but like Liz, isn't like, is Western Union an MSB? Western Union I mean, is an MSP because they do transmit money, Western Union, um, as well as any other of those money remittances. And so they're West technically MSBs and they're mm -hmm. part of this industry. But on the other hand, um, I mean, they've had their own compliance and enforcement challenges. Let's be honest. We've, oh, yeah. we've seen that in the news and fo I followed the, some of those. And actually, one of the persons on the panel was from uh, Western Union at the ACAMS. Uh, and I uh -huh. talked to him about his compliance program, but um, but uh, I guess there was a, a history with MSBs being sort of not well established without AML controls, you know, proper AML controls, and that uh, there was illegal proceeds, I guess, going through them. Is that what it was? That's what people were concerned about? It was. The, the remittance, especially, you know, for example, Western Union, they were used by the Nigerian scammers a lot uh, where they would say, you know, I, you know, I, I have money I need to get out of Nigeria, but I need an account from you in, in, in the United States. Can right. you, you know, go to the nearest Western Union and you can, you know, send this information or send me, you know, $2,000 so I can pay the taxes to get the money out to put into your bank account. And mm -hmm. 
they, the Western Union was facilitated by a lot of these bad actors. And Western Union, um, even though their agents identified it and would try to um, escalate their concerns, you know, the compliance management ignored it. And oh, that's, gotcha. how they got, that's how they that's got how into they trouble. trouble. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so the, the de-risking, and, and do you see this trend like in the cannabis and cryptocurrency can, I mean, I know Congress was actually thinking of, or they, they've been trying to negotiate a legislative fix to allow banks to process these transactions for cannabis, I know. But well, the Safe Banking Act, which recently was passed by the House, is now sitting with the Senate, yeah. would would help alleviate the burden for banks and would basically prohibit regulators from punishing financial institutions that want to provide services to uh, the cannabis industry, so to speak. Um, But that's still, you know, waiting, that's still um, in progress. And like you said, I don't know how fast that that will, you know, we'll see. Yeah, waiting on Congress is like, uh, yeah, waiting on Godot. But let me ask you, uh, do you think that there if that legislation or there was some relief from that legislation, do you think banks will increase, then we'll start to accept more cannabis industry uh, clients? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I know so many banks that have inquired about it, <clears throat> that the board of directors, because of the, um, because they know that there's such, there could be a revenue stream in there, um, they want to provide assistance. And I know like, for example, where I am here in California, the Department of Business Oversight are basically begging banks to please bank them because they're concerned about the safety of the cannabis industry because it's so cash intensive um, right. due to you know the risk of robberies and, and the violent acts that you know, go with cash, you know, the cash that they're, they're right. holding. So and the fact that, you know, they want them to pay their taxes and instead of paying it in cash, they'd like to pay it, you know, electronically. So I understand why, you know, several states are looking to see that this industry is banked by the financial institution. And I think many financial institutions would would probably take them on if it wasn't for the fact that it's illegal in the federal level. Yeah. Interesting. Well, we'll uh, keep watching over that. I know uh, one of our colleagues, Noah Smith, has uh, written a few blog postings on this uh, issue. Uh, We actually did some work for not a financial institution, but a company related to financial institutions in terms of handling transactions uh, related to cannabis. And it was complicated because it involved banks transactions occurring in Canada where cannabis is legal and uh, whatnot. But in any event, um, let me switch topics to another one that I think is going to have not, again, broad application and compliance. This is not to me a financial institution issue because I think there are important lessons here, but I want to say there's, uh, there's sort of a trend that you have identified for me, which is, uh, sort of looking at transaction monitoring systems. And to me, that's a hot issue for me in anti-corruption, in uh, sanctions where you don't have the resources to pull and look at the data or the paperwork for every transaction that a company engages in. So we set up sort of monitoring systems uh, and and then we set up uh, sampling systems. But what I think we could all learn from is sort of looking at the the data that the banks use and what models they look at for how they monitor, uh, because they obviously have lots and lots of transactions. So what's what do you see in that area? And, and what are some of the sort of interesting issues from your perspective about the, the uh, transaction monitoring systems? Well, the transaction monitoring systems is a very good tool, especially in the financial industry where hundreds and thousands of transactions flow through the bank daily. So um, in order to identify suspicious activity, a lot of banks have moved to um, 
installing transaction monitoring systems. So they're rules-based, there's algorithms, and, and now there's some new systems too that are looking at artificial intelligence, which is also mm, new to the industry. Oh yeah. yeah, they're they're starting to introduce artificial intelligence, but the um, the challenge is when we utilize transaction monitoring system, is to make sure that quality data is streaming into it from the source data. So they might have a wire system. They will have the transaction system, which is uh, the core system of a bank where all transactions are posted to a customer's account you know daily whether it's right. a deposit a cash withdrawal an atm transaction any transaction that is conducted on a customer's account is basically moving and flowing correctly into the transaction monitoring system so the challenge there and i think this is the focus of the regulators uh, within the last few years to ensure that the bank does a proper model validation that they do look at their rules or their algorithms created in their transaction monitoring system to ensure it matches the risk profile of the bank that is capturing good data and producing quality alerts not a lot of noise where there's hundreds of alerts produced, but they all don't mean anything. They're all false positives, so to speak, or those alerts are cleared and doesn't result in any investigation. So that is what the regulators are focusing on is the bank doing a good job at monitoring their transaction system. Uh, because there are times when a bank will purchase a transaction monitoring system and just utilize the defaults, turn on the switch, utilize the defaults without creating- They don't match it then to their risk profile? In other words, I'm sure you could make settings for demographic oh, yes. factors. Like for example, I, I mean, to me banking, if you have branches along the Southern border, you're gonna have a different risk, risk profile than somebody that's operating in Nebraska. Absolutely. Uh, or, right. And so, or somebody operating, you and I have talked about this on the West Coast and potential, you know, I know there was a lot of Chinese uh, bribery proceeds that came into Vancouver and, you know, could be coming into the United States as well. So wouldn't those be, wouldn't you take that into account in your transaction monitoring system, your, your risk profile? You should. You're supposed to. You're, you're supposed to ensure that the data is clean and good. So your example, you're correct. A bank in Nebraska, right. it's more ag agriculture. It's more small town. It's more community based. So it's it's consumers and maybe agricultural type of transactions. You know, the, the cattle industry, farming industry, and just your normal consumer activity. For right. a border state, whether it's um, here in California, Arizona, or even up in, you know, bordering Canada, uh, you you have to factor in um, more cash type of activities, uh, maybe even wires. Uh, what types of you know products are utilized more by your customer base that you would need to make sure your rules would capture activity that would be deemed suspicious. So if, if a customer, if we have a regular consumer that is depositing thousands of dollars of cash every week right. or every month, then that transaction monitoring system should have the rules built in to identify that. Here's a customer who's labeled as a consumer depositing enormous amounts of cash that should be reviewed. So yes, that's a basic example of how rules should be uh, Kate, you know, created based on the risk profile of your bank. Uh, and sometimes do you, too- Do you worry, uh, Liz, I'm sorry to uh, mm -hmm. interrupt, uh, but do you worry um, and is there a concern when you set the monitoring system that um, you sort of overwhelm the staff or, you know, let's say you're getting thousands and thousands of alerts. Um, isn't there a risk that you can overwhelm folks with too too much information in that you know oh, red flag absolutely and that is where the model validation and fine tuning comes in uh, okay. but then you need to you you have to bring <laughs> 
you, it's a project into itself. You have to involve your IT um, team. You have to involve somebody that understands, you know, statistics, you know, to read the output uh, of, of the transaction monitoring system uh, because you have to build that fine line as to, you know, at what point do we want to review do at what point do we want the system to alert us versus you know uh, eliminate the the other noise so you have to find that right point within the system is it you know 45% or is it less than that for as an example yeah right. uh, you have to make that justification so you know you, and, and let, me give you an ex let me give you an example let's say i have an account you have my risk profile and then you, um, and then I, let's say I have a, you know, a legal business, but I start, all my deposits come in in large amounts of cash. And so you may have a threshold for what you would expect in terms of cash deposits. Would that be something then that you would flag that? And also it's much more money than I would ever make. Uh, that would be something that would, trigger, you know, depending upon the percentage of cash deposits that I bring in. Correct. That, okay. It, now, correct. But let me ask you, so take, walk us through this. You get an alert, let's say, you get a monitoring alert. What, like what controls and what does a bank normally do once it gets that alert? Like there's been, the monitoring system says, uh-oh, here's the risk profile for this high risk person and they've triggered an alert. What happens then? Who does it go to? What's the process that you've seen? Uh, you know, and talk about sort of a best practice. Well, in terms of you know the normal flow with from transaction right. monitoring system, and an alert is generated. There's a team of team of analysts within a financial institution that review these alerts. So they look at the alert and say, for example, it's um, an account for Liz Slim. I'm in right. a consumer, so my normal profile is I have my my um, payroll direct deposit into my account. I have my normal household living expenses, which could entail my mortgage payment, my utility bills, you know, my the cost of food, and then just daily my entertainment, my monthly entertainment. We go out to the movies, we go to the restaurants, um, that type of thing. But all of a sudden, I have this large incoming wire from say South Africa right that I've never that's never happened to me before then an alert would generate and then the analyst then would look at it and make a determination first of all what did what is the purpose of this where did this wire come from it came from South Africa and is there any information there that they can make note of to either justify it or escalate it to a full-blown investigation would you look then at who sent the wire correct um whatever paperwork is associated i don't know if you get a purpose for the wire um and then if necessary do you then reach out to the customer and the party uh who sent the wire to try to find out what's going on absolutely then if they, if who's the who sent the wire and does it make sense so for example maybe i went to south africa uh, for vacation and i also went to uh, go on a safari but or i i had planned on going on vacation so i right. probably dropped a few thousand dollars for this safari and vacation in in, in africa but right. i didn't i canceled it i canceled that trip due to circumstances here at home. So in terms of reimbursement, they sent a wire back. So maybe the sender was a valid um, right. travel right. agency. And, you know, all they could, they could probably just, you know, ask the customer, oh, you know, this is, we just want to inquire that you were expecting these funds uh, from this travel agency in South Africa. And I will probably say, oh, I had meant to go on a trip and I canceled it. So this is my reimbursement. And so that makes good sense. You know, we, we can accept that and close the alert uh, versus if it wasn't a travel agency and maybe it said the diamond mind or something for, right. that, for that example, right. then right. that would raise a lot of red flags for further investigation. So would there be another level up from the analyst then 
to a an internal or what you call an investigation investigation correct where they would start to look at the customer's profile look at past transactions maybe three to six months worth to see you know is this a pattern or not uh, and maybe do um, look up the sender of the wire uh, through uh, Google or other um, subscription uh, yeah, open source intelligence. Oh, open source Microsoft. intelligence to yeah, see, you know, yeah. is there any other additional information that they can learn about the sender of the funds? But then, you know, on the flip side too, say for example, um, it's tax season. And I normally don't get any large ACH credits other than my payroll in my account. But for some reason, I got this large tax return from the IRS for $10,000. That would hit the alert system as well. But because the analyst can say, oh, the ACH credit into Liz's account came from the IRS and it's, you know, a, a tax refund return because the information is there under the ACH file. Gotcha. Gotcha. Then that alert can be closed as saying it's it's a false positive. We can understand where the source of this came from and it's a, a tax refund for the customer. Now, at each stage. Are the analysts, for example, documenting every step they take uh, and then putting a memo together or some document, some documentation of what they did and what their recommendation is, uh, either to close the matter or elevate it? Absolutely. There has to be a reason documented either in the system or within a electronic file to justify their decision to close the alert or to escalate it into a full-blown investigation and either way everything is about document 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 yeah it sounds like tom fox from the that's his yeah. mantra which is document 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 he uh, uh, a good colleague who uh, always refers to that absolutely so, if um, there's no documentation then it was never done it would never happen and yeah. i mean i always say prosecutors say you can tell them whatever you want but if and then they say okay show me the email show me the document show me the memo and if you don't have it they don't believe it they said that's fine you can say that but i don't believe it happened correct and are regulators the same way in the banking industry oh absolutely there has to be documentation for every decision made, for every risk decision that has been just documented. Uh, they would like to see, you know, what was the what, what was the decision process here, and right. what are you know what are your val what are your validations, and what did you utilize? Uh, you have an email, you did a, a Google search, you have a screenshot. Here's an adverse news. Um, article regarding a client or beneficiary to make come to that decision so they want to see all that right. and, yeah well it's interesting again I would you know to hear this Liz because this is exactly analogous to what companies are doing in their non-financial institutions should be doing in connection with their due diligence of third parties or transactions uh you know contracts and whatnot which are flagged or payments that are flagged uh for uh you know follow-up review so they, these are great principles so well, you um, know um, I, mike in new york new york um department of financial services yeah uh, i think it's 504 everybody knows right. it as 504 right. The state of New York now mandates that compliance officers certify that right. their AML program is robust, that it meets all the qualifications, and that their transaction monitoring system has good quality data. And so they have to certify that on an annual basis, which is more burden, burdensome. Yeah, and I, I know that was a controversial pro provision because it was putting compliance officers on the hook for a false statement, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, sometimes let's be honest, compliance is always fighting for resources mm -hmm. and they can't get the support of senior management for, you know, resources that they need via people or IT or technology. Mm -hmm. And to me that, it, it, you know, I love the, I love the message that it sends, but on the other hand, um, I wish it was, 
the CEO, uh, you know, like we have in Sarbanes-Oxley, are people who are responsible and should be responsible. But I think it triggers at least a conversation that the CCO now has to go to the board and say, look, I, you know, I'm not comfortable or go to senior management and say, I'm not comfortable certifying this. Uh, mm -hmm. Because I've been asking you for a transaction monitoring system for the last four years, and I never get the money for it. You know, I I agree. The CCO, they're in the trenches. They understand what is what they're up against, and they understand right. the compliance challenges. So for them to certify this and be held accountable, uh, I think you're correct. It should be the CEO, right, you know, of the company. But, but I think at least it sends a message. I I mean I hope that we never see a prosecution that's based upon, you know, failure or false certification um, mm -hmm. when it's not the CCO's fault in that right. sense. You know what I mean? Right. But maybe they, I mean, the, their answer would be, well, he's, he or she shouldn't certify and should tell the board that or tell senior management. Well, mm -hmm. good luck, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, because you may be out the door after you make that, you know, require you let people know that you're not going to certify and they'll say, well, We'll see you later. You're gone. Um, okay, let's go to our last topic because I know we've been uh, we've been you know monopolizing your time, uh, Liz, today. Um, and um, and and I know I've I've written I did a one blog posting about this a while ago. Um, the the AML compliance programs for financial institutions. I mean, I know they're burdensome. I know they're rope they have to be robust and we see you know the continuing battle of we need resources to do this and companies internally are struggling with uh, depending upon if they're you know not as they're not all bank of america in other words right um and and uh, we've also seen proposals to modernize uh sort of uh the bsa the bank secrecy act and other requirements uh, because I think some law enforcement agencies will say, look, sometimes we get too much information or we get information that isn't as relevant to us through the SARS reporting system. Mm -hmm. uh, and we'd like to get higher quality SARS, uh, you know, uh, alerts and documentation. What do you think of this, uh, you know, this issue in general and sort of what's your sense of where this is going? Yeah, um, I, I know the regulators at a time were just concerned that banks were not monitoring well to report suspicious activity reports. And now that banks are, including other industries like the casinos and, and, and MSBs, they're now focusing on the quality of the SARS. So I think we're coming back in full circle where law enforcement now is saying, you know, thank you for filing the SARS and giving us this data, but we want quality information. We want good information in the narratives. Um, I know many banks for a while were um, filing SARS as a defensive mode, just, right. you know, we, we file on every cash structuring act activity, regardless if we know that this is legitimate for the customer, you know, so you have those happening, which is not no value to law enforcement. And then you have the SARS where it tells it, they write a book. And, and the poor law enforcement is trying to go through all this information, trying to understand, well, what is this bank really trying to report? So, you know, FinCEN has come back to referencing some of their guidance and uh, a lot of, I, I know, a lot of webinars or even back at uh, some of those national conferences, they're focusing on writing good SAR narratives again, on focusing on the who, what, where, when, how, and why, but, you know, being concise. Uh, I know law enforcement likes to see things in chronological order. And when um, I talk about it with my colleagues, I said, you know, in your opening paragraph, you know, you want law enforcement to read this. So state in the beginning, what are you trying to report? What activity occurred? You know, it could be a 
potential drug trafficking activity or even human trafficking uh, occurred based on these factors. And then you will start identifying what accounts were involved, uh, how, what was the source of funds, where did it occur, if you have any names of subjects that you know would be pertinent to them. They just want all the details up front. So, right. you know, SAR quality now is a lot of the focus uh, for regulators and, and law enforcement. A, uh, didn't you just speak at a conference on this uh, topic, I think, uh, or there was some meeting where you spoke on this recently? Uh, I did present on SAR quality in 2019 at the ACAMS conference. And then, um, in fact, uh, in a few weeks, uh, there is a okay. two-day seminar, which I will also be focusing again on SAR narratives. Um, so to help uh, the financial institutions, again, you know, focus on providing good quality information to law enforcement. And I speak to law enforcement a lot, too. So um, I also like to hear from them, what do they want to see? Right. to make it relevant so they can focus on the details to either create a case or it, it supplements an investigation that they're already working on. Because the whole purpose, again, of the whole um, anti-money laundering program is to assist law enforcement as well. So we want to be good partners with them. Right. It makes total sense. Mm -hmm. Well, um, Liz, this has been just fantastic. Um, I appreciate your time. Uh, if people uh, want to get in touch with you, uh, what's your email address uh, that they can reach you at um, uh, so they can sort of follow up on any issues or discuss any uh, AML issues or financial compliance or overall compliance issues? I can be reached at eslim at volkovlaw.com. So that's E-S-L-I-M at volkovlaw.com. Dot com. And I look forward to hearing from everybody and anybody. I'm always willing to answer questions and to um, help in any way uh, you see fit as much as I can. Well, terrific. Thanks, Liz. Um, we appreciate this. We'll put up a good theme song with your uh, with your uh, with this interview. And, um, you know, we're just uh, excited to have you with the firm. Uh, I know your expertise is just more than valuable. Uh, and we bring, uh, we're just happy to have you part of the team. And uh, we'll do more on any sort of interesting issues that may come up as we go along. Uh, look for some sort of following any interesting enforcement actions and uh, compliance issues uh, in the upcoming year. Thanks again. And uh, everybody, uh, we'll be back in touch with another uh, Thank you.